you to turn to the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, and that would be page 707 in the church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you. As most of you know, we've been working verse by verse through Mark's Gospel. We just started uh, three weeks, four weeks ago, and here we are, all spared, Lord willing, in the 14th verse of the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Okay, let's hear the word of the Lord, verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Amen. God Bless the reading of his word this morning. Please, if you would, bow with me. Father, it is such a privilege to be here. I was thinking when we were worshiping you that no one would be in any doubt at all by the songs that we sang, who you are, who Jesus is, and what the cross has accomplished. And so it's a great privilege to be in a context like this where we can do this Sunday by Sunday. So I just want to begin thanking you for that privilege. And now, God, we have the privilege of turning to our Bible. And so we thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which illumines the Bible in order that we would understand it. And because of that, God, we humbly ask that we may know and feel your power this morning and know and sense and believe on your Son. And like these men we have just read of, we too may become disciples, followers of your Son, fishers of men and women. Now, only you can accomplish these things, Father. Therefore, we ask you in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, I found out this week that one of the most successful, if not the most successful uh, coaches in sports was asked a question um, right after uh, or right before the presser or for his, before his team's practice, he was asked this question by a reporter. Of all the things you have accomplished in your coaching career, of which there are many, what are some things you still want to accomplish? So he answered easily, quickly. It was a very simple answer, very straightforward. He said, well, I'd like to have a good practice today. Basic, right? It, it might seem to some like, really, you know, that's it, and and we may not uh, be used to that kind of answer. We may have accepted something uh, more higher-minded, larger, more bells and whistles, uh, maybe an answer with a lot more nouns and a lot more verbs. However, he is one of the greatest coaches in history of sports, and I think at the heart of his answer, "I want to have a good practice today," is probably where the foundation of his success. 
uh, lies. In other words, that's his core work. He, he knows he needs to do the basics well. Practice today, a good one. It's clear, it's uncomplicated. No one would be in any doubt what it is this person wants to accomplish. And in some measure, I would say that it takes us right to the text. So imagine if Jesus was asked the question, okay, Jesus, why did God send you? And what does God want you to say? In other words, Jesus, what is your message? And Jesus, what is your mission? And when Jesus answered that question, everyone could know with absolute clarity what his message is and what his mission is. In turn, we would know if we are followers of Christ, not only what it means to genuinely belong to Jesus Christ, repentance and faith, verse 15, but we would equally know what is to be our message and what is to be our mission as followers of Christ, as subjects, if you would, of his kingdom. So in light of that, we have just two headings this morning. And to be honest with you, we're only going to get through one. We'll touch on the second one, but it'll just be a very, very light touch. Jesus' message and Jesus' message, message or mission, excuse me. First of all, then his message. How could it be any clearer, right? Verse 14, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Verse 15, okay, here's the message. Here's the good news. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, two weeks ago, we learned that the coming of Jesus Christ was predicted in the Old Testament. If your Bible's open, you'll see that in verses 2 and 3. We then found out Jesus who was predicted was the Jesus who was preached by John the Baptist. That would be verses 4 to 7. And at the baptism of Jesus, the voice from heaven, God the Father says, again, verse 11, this is my son, with him I am well pleased. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit, verse 10, where we find the Holy Spirit descending on Christ like a dove. So the Father pronouncing and the Spirit empowering the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Christ is predicted, Christ is preached, Christ is pronounced by the Father uh, as the, as the in, inaugurating his ministry, and he is empowered by the Holy Spirit. So now it is time. It's time for the earthly ministry of Christ to begin. And I want you to notice that the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ begins with what? It begins with preaching. That Jesus is a preacher. His methodology is preaching. He speaks the very words of God. He has the message from God. Yes, he heals. Yes, he does good deeds. But he is the one declaring, preaching, verse 14, proclaiming the good news. Keruso euangelion of God. Proclaiming the good news of God. And the Greek word there translated proclaiming, keruso, that is a technical word used for preaching. And so when a Greek student would see that word, they would say, aha, this isn't just talking. This isn't just rambling. This is heralding. This is preaching. Making public the authoritative binding word of God, which brings with it eternal accountability to everyone who hears it. Now, did you hear that? This is the authoritative word of God binding, which brings with it eternal accountability to everyone who hears it. That's preaching. This is how Jesus understood preaching. So preaching is not motivational speaking. That's something else. Preaching is not giving advice. That's something else. Preaching is not speaking from my heart with a closed mind in a closed Bible. 
That's something else. Preaching is preaching. So Jesus is heralding the good news, the given message. And that is to be the standard for all preaching. A dying man, if you would, speaking to dying men and women, a message from God to people who are accountable to God for what they hear. So again, this is an advice. This is not, well, you can take it or leave it. I don't care. No. This is definitely not, you can do better. And here's a list of five things that you need to do so you can do better. Every sermon Christ preaches as he went into Galilee comes with eternal consequences to his listeners and is tied to the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross. Okay, Jesus, what does God want you to say? Right? What is your message? That's our question. What does God want you to say to the student at university, to the nice lady at the club? What is your message to the very successful business owner? Clerks, uh, managers, uh, the person in the church pew, the farmer, uh, the retirees, the middle-aged empty nesters, a single mother, prisoners, terrorists, to kings and rulers of this world. Did I miss anybody? I hope not. What is it that God wants you to say? What's your message, Jesus? Because, Jesus, you have to admit, (laughs) a whole lot of people say, you say a whole lot of things. And Jesus, if a thinking person did a kind of spreadsheet of those people who say what you say, it wouldn't add up. So it's almost like when you're listening to people, Jesus, it's almost like there's lots of different tribes and they're working against each other. In fact, sometimes people in the tribes say different things, Jesus. In fact, some of the things people say you say, they conflict with each other. So... I'm in need of some help, Jesus. What is your message? Now, is it not good for us together to simply open our Bibles and let Jesus speak for himself? Saving us from all kinds of flights of fancy where we created Jesus to our liking, our bents, our taste, our wills. His message, verse 14 I've got some good news. Verse 15, the time has come. The kingdom is near. Repent and believe that good news. That's his message. In short, the message of Jesus Christ to the world, to the church, is and always will be the gospel, the good news. It's fitted for context, absolutely. It's fitted for circumstances, absolutely. But it's always central. It's always central. And the clarity that Mark gives in verse 15, I think is very helpful because people, as we've been saying, like to turn Jesus into into all kinds of things. And because of that this morning, I am so compelled to just stop for a moment and to remind you that, that Mark's gospel is not about us. It's about Jesus. Well, you say, you keep saying that. Well, I am, I know. Maybe a few more weeks and I'll stop. It's about Jesus. Is it for us? Of course it is. But it's not about us. And that means Mark's gospel is not a you can do better book. That, that is, that, um, Mark's gospel is not about a mere man giving tips. That's moralism. Moralism is our enemy. Timothy Keller this week in a tweet, this is what he said. The gods of moralistic religions favor the successful and the overachievers. 
They are the ones who, who are able to climb the moral ladder up to heaven. But the God of the Bible is the one who comes down into this world to accomplish a salvation and give us a grace we could never attain ourselves. Do you like hearing that? Do you? I like hearing that. Loved ones, the Christian gospel says that we're so flawed that Jesus had to die for us and yet we're so loved and we're so esteemed that Jesus was glad to die for us. You see, that's good news. And what that does then, it leads to deep humility. Someone died for me. Deep contrition. Someone died for me. My sins. And it gives us deep confidence. And at the same time, it undermines uh, the, the boastful and the whiner, right? I cannot feel superior to anyone because of Christ. And yet, I have nothing to prove to anyone because of Christ. So I do not think more of myself or less of myself. Instead, I think more of others and certainly more of Jesus Christ. Which means the gospel, the good news, is for people who realize, and if you would, they keep realizing that we cannot wash ourselves clean. No matter how hard we scrub, no matter what kind of fancy soap you use, or not, you know, that brushing technique that you use, right? Do you ever see those things they advertise on those infomercials? They're like a little scrubber with a bat- handle and the battery and the little scrubber goes around and around. You know those things don't work. I mean, come on, only the people that get them are crazy people. They don't work. So you got a great technique to scrub and you got great soaps. We cannot make ourselves clean. We cannot fix ourselves right. The gospel then that Jesus preaches tells us there's this massive gap between what is real and ideal and we can't shrink that gap. You see, that's one of the reasons why the religious might of Jesus' day, and we'll find this out as we go through Mark, they could not stand him. The religious elite were not impressed with Jesus at all. They were the overachieving types. They were the religious. Hey, we, we do just about everything right. And by golly, we want to keep doing it right. In fact, we want to do it better. And we're going to do it better. And the stuff we don't do right, we'll double down and get it right. Hey, hey, we're going to get it right. And what does Jesus say to that? He says, oh, by the way, prostitutes and tax collectors are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Do you understand that? Okay, drug dealers and harlots are entering the kingdom of God before you religious zealots, before you overachievers, before you people who set aside Jesus. And the reason why these people, prostitutes and tax collectors, why they are entering the kingdom of God before the religious elite of that day, because they have become aware of their sin. And when they were confronted with their sin, they did not turn inward. They didn't say, I'm going to try better. They turned to Jesus. And they cried out for Jesus to help them, to save them. Because they knew. See, because this is one of the the side effects of indwelling sin and being honest with it. They knew that they couldn't save themselves. Again, we said it two weeks ago. They might be able to reduce it, but they can't remove it. And so they need a savior. You see, I think, I think people forget the centrality of Christ so easily And they think that the gospel is like some kind of abstract package of salvation that God gives. And and so we get it and we either check it off our bucket list and go on to other things because, you know, we've got the insurance and we go off to other things. Or we turn Christianity to an exercise program, right? I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do that. And after that, I'm going to go back and do it all over again. 
and not a marriage with Jesus Christ. Verse 1, Jesus Christ is the grace of God. Jesus Christ is the gospel. He's the gift of God. He's the good news. And so to know who Jesus Christ is and what he has done could not be more central for Christians and for Christianity. Think of it like this. You get Jesus Christ wrong and you get everything. Everything. Not just church stuff. You get everything wrong. So so now for the third time in this sermon... (laughs) Is it not so easy to create a designer Jesus, right? A Jesus of our imagination, our emotion, a Jesus of our own ideology. And so whatever age and stage we're at in life, we take Jesus and we twist twist him like a wax wax nose. And then that season of life is over with. And then we take him and we twist him and we go for that life. However, the message of Jesus for all eternity, right? Verse 15, it can't be any more straightforward, and it's unchanging. Indeed, what we have here in verse 15 is a summary of his message. It's almost like a title, which, which Mark gives, and it covers almost the next seven or eight chapters. In fact, if you read up until chapter 8, and you ask yourself the question, okay, what is it that Jesus has been saying in every one of his encounters thus far? Generally speaking, when you look at verse 15, you're going to say to yourself, yes, I see Jesus has been giving the good news. Different circumstances, absolutely. Different people, sure. But the same basic message. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So since that phrase is so important, let's break it down for a moment. And let's look at each of the phrases in turn. So the first one is the time has come. So that statement underpins a basic Christian truth that God is sovereign over all of human history. When Jesus says the time has come, what he's saying is God has planned for this exact moment and all of history, human history, has been working towards this moment. It was God's sovereign plan for the world. Everything, if you would, is headed towards Jesus Christ, which means, again, all of human history is headed towards will meet, if you would, at the throne of Christ. I mean, if you really think about that, that's pretty incredible. You know, right now we'd say billions of human lives before the throne of Christ. It could be trillions, right? We don't know how long we're going to be here. So it could be trillions of people headed towards the throne of Christ. So when Jesus says the time has come, it's not an afterthought. This has been planned. And to understand the intensity of what he says, in the Greek language, there's two Greek words for time. One is probably familiar to you. It's chronos, moment by moment time, chronological time, if you would. The other, which is the word used here, it's keros, which refers to a particular moment of time, which is so significant, it defines and changes everything else which comes after it. So you get that? So it's such a huge moment that after that moment happens, everything else changes. Uh, The first time you told someone that you love them and you asked them to marry you, if you're a male or female, I guess, too. The first child born to your family. Everything changes. The signing of a peace treaty. Everything changes. When you finally realize as a husband your wife has been right all along about everything. Hey, wait a minute. How'd that get in there? Whoa. It's a significant moment. 
everything changes. You would say, this is an historic (laughs) occasion. Everything is going to be changed because of it. So when Jesus steps onto the scene of human history, he's saying, this is a historic moment for all humanity. Because in eternity past, God the Father had ordained for this exact time for his kingdom to come, if you like, upon you. It was it Isaiah that people who have been walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in darkness, living in the fishing city of Galilee, have encountered the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. And nothing's ever going to be the same again. And loved ones, whether you believe it or not, every time the gospel is preached, every time the gospel is spoken, every time we meet here and the gospel is sung and proclaimed, God the Father has prepared for this exact moment to come and our lives will never be the same again because of it. Because if you think about it, this moment that we have right here, we can't promise each other that we'll guaranteed be back here next Sunday. Not to scare you, just reality. We can't make that promise. But what we can say is that right now God has ordained this moment. And don't let familiar glories make you reduce the importance of occasions like this. No surprise in the second statement, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is near And the kingdom of God, what is it? Well, the kingdom of God, in short, is the rule and reign of God over the lives of men and women. Okay, so then what does Jesus mean when he says it's near? The kingdom of God is near. Well, this is what he means. He means the rule of God over the lives of men and women is being established and the nearness or the proximity of the kingdom is always only in terms of Jesus. Okay, the kingdom of God is near in the person of Christ, in the preaching of Christ, in the worship of Christ, if you would, in the people of Christ. That's the proximity. So in Jesus' baptism, he was publicly installed as king, right? In fact, God quotes himself from Psalm 2, the voice from heaven. You see it there in verse 11. And so what God was doing, he was publicly installing his son as the king of his kingdom, which is why I told you a moment ago, All that Mark writes of it, at least up until chapter 8, illustrates that Jesus has king power and king authority. So he calls people into his kingdom. And what happens? Verse 16, they come. He defeats the powers of hell soundly. He heals the sick. He removes the effects of sin. He forgives sin. And he changes life. How can he do that? He's the king. And where his... His kingdom is near, where his kingdom is operating, then you know that Jesus is there. So again, the kingdom of God operating in the lives of his subjects is the rule and reign of God over God's people in God's place, under God's authority, which is God's son, right? The subjects, we do what he would do. We, we say what he would say. We believe what he would believe because we're subjects to the king, Jesus, and his kingdom. And so one day, according to Revelation chapter 21, the kingdom which is near, right, is going to be the kingdom completed. And so there's going to be a new heaven and a new 
earth which dwells righteousness and there's not going to be any more tears and there's not going to be any more cancer and there's not going to be any more growing old and dying and there's not going to be any separation and no one has to go to recovery groups anymore and, and no one's going to have to be weeping and crying because they, they, they can't deal with life and anxiety. All that's over with. When the kingdom of God comes, is established in fullness which would be the ultimate consummation of the work of Christ on the cross, right? That, was, that is in part what Jesus was working towards when he suffered and died for our sins there. Therefore, when one encounters Jesus, and this is why Jesus must be preached, when one encounters Jesus, he tells them that he has come to rule and reign over their lives and waiting for that day when his rule will be firmly and completely established. The kingdom then is a present reality with a future consummation. That's the kingdom, but, but what? Well, the kingdom is veiled, isn't it? To many people. I mean, if you think about it right now, Jesus appears to some people like just another God in the pantheon of gods. He's a really nice man. He's like a rabbit's foot. So he's there to keep around so nothing too bad will happen to us. Or he's there to turn tricks for us, right? But nothing more, keep the kids in line, money in the bank, health in our bodies, job status solid, fun in the sun, political ideology, marriage guru, whatever. But what does the Bible say? Well, he's the king over the universe. He's the sovereign Lord of creation. Everything was made by him and for him. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. He's the son of God. He's ascended to the right hand of the father who from there he will, he will come to judge the living and the dead. And our friends and neighbors who who have never thought Jesus through it all, they have no concept of what I just said. And if they're going to encounter the kingly rule of Jesus, it's more than likely going to have to be in your life or my life. They're going to have to ask the question, why is it that you have so much interest in Jesus? Why do you give so much attention to, to, to his book? Why is it that you speak of him to me so often? Why is it that you like to spend time with others who love Jesus and so on? What's our answer? Well, I hope it's because Jesus is our king. And he's come to rule and reign over my life. And I got out of the driver's seat of my Life a long time ago, we could say. And Jesus has been driving the car of my life ever since. And every once in a while, I like to jump over there and drive the wheel or grab the wheel. But Jesus kindly smacks my hand off. As opposed to the type of Christianity that says, listen, I'm going to put Jesus in the back seat. I'm going to let the king be in the back seat. And I'm not going to be a chauffeur. I'm just going to drive. And he's there for my insurance policy. Again, I don't want anything bad happen to me. I heard somewhere he can stop bad things from happening to me, and so I'm going to keep him around just for that. But I don't want him fiddling around with the steering wheel. I will not let him put the feet on the gas or the brake pedal. I'm not going to let my life, what is the song? Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and uh, my days and let them be filled with ceaseless praise. None of that. He can't have my lips. Nope. He can't have my hands. Nope. My feet. But he's there in the back seat. All for myself. Buckled up. Because you never know. Now, loved ones. Nobody could ever misunderstand that as being loyal to a king. Could they? 
No. In fact, who, who's really the king in that scenario? And that's why Jesus says, verse 15, repent and believe the good news. That's standard fare in all the New Testament sermons in the book of Acts. Somebody at the end, in the middle, the beginning of the sermon is telling people, repent. Standard fare. So what does repent mean? Well, most of you know this will be a reminder to some, maybe new to some. To repent means to have a change of heart, a change of mind, and a change of direction in my life. Repent does not mean to feel sorry. There may be sorrow in repentance, but sorrow does not necessarily equal repentance. To repent does not mean I'm sorry because I was found out. And we all know what that's like. That's not genuine repentance. If you actually go to the Welcome Center, you'll see a little yellow book, a children's questions and answers, question 54. Uh, what does it mean to repent of your sin? Answer, I am truly sorry for my sins. I hate them. And I want to stop doing them. And I want to live to please God. You had to cram it even shorter. To repent means to turn from sin and turn to Christ. Because repentance is to be so confronted with the kingly rule of Jesus that the very core of our lives, the the central part of our lives, if you would, our CPU system, is turned over entirely to Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, it means this. All our hopes, all our plans, our whole mind, all of our emotions, our common life, our work life, our sex life, our financial life, our family life, all of it is under the kingly rule of Jesus. By nature, it's not. By nature, when you listen to what I just said, you're like, what? Are you kidding me? All of it? Therefore, if the rule of Christ is going to become a reality, then repentance is something which needs to happen in our lives. And so the question which is inescapable, when you read verses like this, you listen to them or you hear them being preached, you have to personalize them. And you have to ask yourself the question, has there ever honestly been a point in my life where I've had that radical change of heart and mind and direction? Have I ever done that? Well, it will never happen on its own. It will never happen absence faith, belief, in Christ. So, so please don't mistake repentance as I'm going to get really serious about religion. Repentance is not I'm going to be good. I'm going to turn over a new leaf and I'm going to fix things up in my life. There, there are plenty of openings where you can do that. There's plenty of books which will tell you how to do that. If you're feeling bad about yourself or you're feeling bad about things and you want your statistics to change, you know, you want your, your statistics to enhance. Plenty of places to go for that. I mean, we understand all of that. In fact, sometimes I think too much of preaching is, okay, you sermon, you need to fix yourself up. And here's how you can change yourself. You come back next week and we'll do it all over again. Now listen, stack all those sermons up. Just for one year, stack them up. What a burden. I mean, some of you have been listening to sermons for 30 years. Try that. Every week you tell me something I'm doing bad and you're going to tell me how I can fix it. But you don't preach Jesus to me. Who can live that way? Try that in a marriage every week. Your wife or your husband's like, you're not, you better, you fit. Huh. 
baby, I'm tired. I'm really tired. And I'm sorry I'm such a creep. Will you forgive me? You see, that is not what Jesus is saying. You see, the repentance, which is a change of heart and mind and direction, is built upon, is grounded on, relies on, and here it is, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask yourself this question. Why would I change anything about myself in relationship to Jesus Christ who lived 2,000 years ago? Why? I mean, I understand change for me because I like me. So I want to get better. I understand all that. Right? I want people to acknowledge me, to see me grow and all that kind of stuff. Why would we change for Jesus? Well, here's why. Until we understand who Jesus is, and when we understand what my sin has done, when I understand what he accomplished on the cross, that he died my death for my sin. Now, don't get tired of familiar glories. That he did all that. That he showed me kindness in my rebellion. And he was king. And he gave that for me. Then it makes all the sense in the world. Being invaded by the transforming power in faith. That I would turn away from everything. Which represents my own selfish agenda. And my own selfish movements. And my own selfish mind. And the agenda which I'm king. And I call the shots. And Jesus is reduced to my personal genie. He's my handyman. He's my fixer upper. But he's not my king. Our fallen nature says we want to do whatever we want when we want. Why would you do that? A disciple of Jesus Christ understands two things. They understand that since Jesus Christ is king, as a disciple, they have no authority to believe anything they want, and they have no authority to behave any way they like. And that's why Jesus says what he says. I'm king. I am here. This is a big moment. Historic. The time has come. The kingdom is near. Repent. Because you've been doing what you want for way too long. Repent and believe the good news. And loved ones, I can tell you by personal testimony that when we actually do that, And by the way, I do that almost every day. It is a most lovely thing. The promise of God is that we will enter into life that is truly life. And then we're going to be able to make sense of life. We will fear life less. We make sense of death. Uh, We make sense of our human frailty. Which is when, in some sense, what people are always trying to do. Right? They, They want to have some handle on life. Control of life. Okay, who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? And does it even matter? And what am I going to do? You know, bits and pieces of me are falling off as I grow older. (laughs) I am breaking down pretty fast. How can I fix this? My son told me a couple of weeks ago when we were talking at Caribou, (laughs) which was a lovely moment. But anyway, um, he told me that Silicon Valley is spending millions of dollars trying to find out how we could live forever. And so they're very convinced it can happen. In fact, some of them think it can happen in our lifetime. So they're pouring money into it, trying to make it happen. So one of the things they thought about doing is downloading our brains into a better body. 
And they're working on that. Okay, why do they do that? Because death is the great enemy, the great fear. Death is the fear of all fears. That is what most people are afraid of. Therefore, the question is, is there anyone who has conquered death and made a way for me to conquer it as well? Enter the Lord Jesus Christ onto the stage of human history. And he says, listen to me. The time has come. The kingdom is near. I am the gospel. I want you to repent. I want you to believe in me. Believe the good news. John's gospel, he summarized it. John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he, that he was honest with the world. I added that. That he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes on him will not perish, but have exactly what Silicon Valley is looking for. Eternal life. Not as a result of downloading my brain into a better body, but by bowing down to Jesus, acknowledging my life is a decomposing mess. My best efforts to fix myself are hopeless. I am reckless. And I realize that Jesus, who is king, he has done for me what I can't do for myself. That's why it's always by faith. Repent and believe. Faith. How much does it cost? It's free. It's a gift. Loved ones, that is Jesus' message. And his mission, verse 16, his mission is to proclaim his message and to see his message and his mission established into the lives of people. Now we're going to have to stop. But before I do, let me say this. You cannot get much clearer than what we just said. What is the message? The kingdom of God is near. Repent. Change of heart, change of mind, change of direction. And believe. Faith in Christ. Believe the gospel. God is holy. We are hopeless sinners. Christ died and rose again for sinners. And this great salvation is enjoyed by faith in Christ, which enables us to increasingly do what? Treasure Jesus Christ as our greatest love. You see, what makes the gospel the gospel is that it brings a person into an everlasting, listen carefully, it brings a person into an everlasting relationship with Jesus Christ. Ever-increasing joy is what the New Testament says. And you see, that is good news. That is good news. It's so basic that you either have to work really hard to ruin the message Or you have to think so much of yourself that you're going to change the message. So remember our coach, when we asked the question, you've accomplished so much, what else do you want to accomplish? Reply, I just want to have a good practice today. Jesus, Jesus, what do you want to accomplish? Well, I want to preach and I want my people to proclaim and preach, to repent, to believe the good news to believe in me. Is that it, Jesus? Yeah, that's it. One of the greatest tragedies, tragedies of the fall is that we get tired of familiar glories. There is no greater glory than the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love you this morning. Lord bless you, let's pray. Father, to know the Lord Jesus Christ is probably the shortest description of true grace. 
To know him better is the surest mark that uh, grace is real and it's growing. And to know him perfectly, that is eternal life. And so we long for that day to come. Father, may your love and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.